And now for something completely different. The following program is intended for mature audiences. Brother, I've seen all kinds of dishonesty in my day, but this little display takes the cake. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. All righty then. Hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am Gamer Dude. Glad to have you with us for another episode of Stories. The stories this week are going to be about lies, conspiracies, history that you didn't know, little known facts about nothing, but all of it kind of important or at least interesting. And yeah, I have this stuff stuck in my head which is why nobody ever wants to play Trivial Pursuit with me. I have all of this useless information in my head, and I don't always know what to do with it, so you're getting it today. (laughs) In all seriousness, I've always been fascinated by history and by the little-known facts, the little backstories, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes that we don't know about, or the stuff that we're never told about. And when I find stuff like that, I like to dig into it. And it's always interesting to me, the stuff that comes up. And there are tons of places where you can find this information, especially in this day and age. So any of the topics that you hear me talk about today, you'll be able to find them just simply by Googling them. So you can dive down the rabbit holes I find myself in all of the time, and you can check this information out for yourself. I love this stuff. Now, I'm going to try to keep it simple and kind of surface-oriented, because I know not everybody loves this stuff to the depth that I do. But having a little information might spark your interest into some of these topics, because some of this stuff is fascinating. I love this stuff. Now, my disclaimer is I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't have a tinfoil hat in the back of the closet. But I do believe that a lot of the time, we don't always get the information that we need. We don't always look for the information that we should have. We don't always inform ourselves the way we should inform ourselves about the goings-on in the world, whether it's something that happened last week Last month, last year, last decade, last century, there's an old phrase that really does apply. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And that's why I've always been interested in the stuff that's happened before, because it does influence what happens today and in the future. I'm not advocating, by the way, that you should use what I'm about to tell you for anything more than information. But it is an interesting piece of information. We all pay income tax, right? (laughs) At least I hope you do. And that's all based on the passage of the 16th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. That allowed the federal government to charge income tax and to collect income tax from all the citizens. Now, the 16th Amendment was supposedly passed in 1913. Supposedly. Now, we're going to go into a little detail here. This is just so you understand where this is coming from. In order for an amendment to make it to the Constitution, the first thing that has to happen is each House of Congress has to pass it by a two-thirds majority. Then, three-fourths of all of the states have to pass it, and they have to pass it in the exact form that it was sent to them by Congress. They can't change it, they can't alter the wording, they can't alter the punctuation, it just has to be the exact same amendment. So if you get two-thirds of each of the houses of Congress and three-fourths of the states, then the amendment becomes part of the Constitution. That's the way it's supposed to work. So this guy named William Benson, he's a criminal investigator, he decided to do some research on this subject to find out exactly what happened when the 16th Amendment was passed. Or, should I say, supposedly passed. 
He spent a year traveling the 48 states that existed at the time of the passage of the amendment. Because don't forget, Alaska and Hawaii only came in in 1959, so in 1913 there were only 48 states. So he started doing some digging into the legislative history of the passage of this 16th Amendment. And some of the things he found quite interesting. For instance, in Kentucky, he found that the state's House of Representatives had passed the amendment, but the state Senate had not. Oh, and by the way, the governor hadn't signed it. Hmm, problem there. He found in Oklahoma, Congress had passed a version with different wording than the one they passed in Oklahoma. Hmm. When he got to California, he found out that there were some words that were omitted from the amendment that was given to the legislature in California. Hmm. Now, 38 states supposedly had passed the amendment back in 1913. But if you take those three out, we're down to 35. I'm not going to give you a hard math test, but 35 states is not three-fourths of the states at the time. So that's just the first three. But then Benson, the investigator, did a little digging and he found out that not a single one of the states actually passed the amendment the way it was supposed to be passed under the rules of the Constitution. There were all kind of procedural snafus. Tennessee and Wyoming, for instance, recorded a history that they had ratified it, but the original documents in Tennessee and Wyoming showed that they didn't. Some of the states had procedural errors in the ratification process. Some changed the wording or the punctuation or the spelling or the capitalization, all things you're not supposed to do. Basically, every state that supposedly passed the 16th Amendment didn't do it right. Now, what does that mean? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> it means absolutely nothing, except that we're paying income tax based on an amendment that was never technically done correctly. You can find this history, by the way. There's a huge book that Benson wrote. It's called The Law That Never Was. It's like two huge volumes of documentation. It's all there. And what's it going to get you? Probably a backache from carrying it around and lots of information that is going to be absolutely useless. Because we're still going to be paying income tax. You go ahead and try to tell the IRS, well, your amendment isn't right. Don't think it hasn't been tried before. It has. But it's just a piece of information I thought you'd like to have. Another piece of information I thought you'd like to have has to do with voting. Now, there's been a lot of talk about the way the Russians interfered with the 2016 election. And that's been established as fact by many different sources. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the problems in our elections that date back 30 years before 2016. And technically, even before that. Now, some of you may remember, and some of you may not, the election from the year 2000, when George Bush, the junior, was running against Al Gore. And the phrase, hanging Chad, became popular. For those who don't remember... In 2000, the election was so close they had to go do a hand recount of the votes in Florida. And back then, a number of the votes were counted by a computerized punch card. And when you punch a card with a pencil or a stylus or however they have you punch the card at the voting booth, that little piece of cardboard that sticks out and is supposed to fall out is called a chad. And what happened in this election is when people would punch their cards that little piece of cardboard would not detach. It would be hanging. And thus the phrase hanging chad became popular. It was always known before, but nobody knew what a hanging chad was until the election of 2000. 
And then the debate was, well, do you count a vote where the hanging chad is still attached to the card? Oh, it got crazy. But even the hanging chad isn't the problem. The problem is computerized voting, any computerized voting of any kind, whether it's a scanner that scans your vote or you entering your vote on a touchpad or anything where a computer is involved. People have known in the voting industry for 30 plus years, ever since they've had computers count votes, that they are unreliable and can be easily tampered with. I mean, think about it. Think about how easy it is to code. Think about how easy it is to write programs. Think about how easy it is to write an app. You don't think it's easy for somebody to program a touchpad to enter whatever they want it to enter? Where's the paper trail? Where's the concrete objective evidence of the fact that you vote for candidate A, you push the button that says candidate A, and the machine you vote on spits out a vote for candidate A? There is no paper trail these days. And that's why hand voting, hand counting is the only reliable way to record votes. Now, I'm not saying that the companies that create these machines do so with any ill intentions themselves, but the fact that the systems are easily hackable and the information easily manipulated is not a good thing. Most computer systems, and you can check me on this, but most computer systems allow operators to turn off and on audit trails, to change memory locations, to turn off machines and reset them if necessary, which, by the way, has been done during the course of an election. For instance, in Middlesex County, New Jersey, back in 2000, a vote-counting computer went on the fritz. It recorded votes for both the Republican and Democratic candidates in the county freeholder race, but simply wiped out all the votes for their respective running mates. Back in 1985, in a Dallas-Texas race for mayor, they shut off the computerized machine because it was malfunctioning and reprogrammed it on the spot, giving it new instructions so that it would properly record votes. And we can even go back to 1980. Orange County, California, a programmer's error gave about 15,000 votes cast for Jimmy Carter and Ted Kennedy to Jerry Brown and Lyndon LaRouche. By the way, that's an interesting name to look up to if you want to. And I'm just giving you those examples as isolated instances dating back more than 30 years of where we've had computer problems recording votes. Now, a hand count of votes is certainly not perfect. I mean, imagine counting 9 million votes in the state of New Jersey. Somebody's got to do it. Do computers make it easier? Yeah, they make it easier. But when we're talking about the basic tenets of democracy, each person gets a vote and each person's vote should be counted. Shouldn't we try to do it right and do it accurately rather than efficiently? Should we rely on a system that's easily hackable? Easily subject to manipulation? I'm thinking, probably not. No, I'm not saying it's a huge conspiracy, except maybe it is. Nobody who's in office wants to lose power, and the people who are in office have the say in how votes are counted. If you're not in office, you don't get to pass legislation on who's going to do the counting, do you? If you're not in office, you don't get to say on what company you're going to use, do you? If you're not in office, you don't get a say on who's counting the votes, do you? I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Here's a good one for you. Did you know at the end of the 19th century that in both the U.S. and the U.K., opium and morphine were very popular medicinal and recreational drugs? 
And did you know that heroin was derived for the first time by boiling morphine at about that time? Yeah, working class families in England used opium for pretty much all types of illnesses and injuries. Coughs, sleeplessness, symptoms from pneumonia, tuberculosis. Some mothers actually gave morphine to fussy babies, which also unfortunately led to the inadvertent deaths of some of those fussy babies because of overdoses of morphine. But it was easily available to families in the late 19th century. Morphine was also the drug of choice to treat folks from the Civil War. You'd have an arm amputated, you'd have a leg amputated. Morphine was the only thing that would make the pain tolerable. But morphine is highly addictive, and it led to high rates of addiction. So much so that addiction to morphine became known as the soldier's disease after the Civil War. So in 1898, Bayer, you know, the aspirin people, the pharmaceutical company, they began marketing a preparation of heroin, which comes, as I mentioned, from boiling morphine for several hours. Heroin was promoted as being non-addicting <laughs> and therefore an excellent treatment for morphine addiction. Where that logic comes from, I don't know. And they had no scientific basis for saying it as far as I've been able to find. But that's what they said. And so instead of using morphine, people began to use heroin. Heroin was used to treat bronchitis and tuberculosis and other cough-inducing illnesses. And here's a fun fact. Back in 1906, the American Medical Association approved heroin for general use and recommended that it be used in place of morphine. Yes, heroin as a replacement for morphine. Well, guess what happened? Hundreds of thousands of heroin addicts. Who could have figured that one out? What a surprise that was. And as a result of the hundreds of thousands of heroin addicts, Congress and the states started taking action against, oh, the use of heroin. And shocking as this may be to find out, the fact that Congress decided to act against the use of heroin and outlaw its use and classify it as an illegal drug didn't stop the use of heroin or morphine or opium. And somehow marijuana got swept up in that too. But we'll save the marijuana discussion for another episode. Yeah, this is all about how good heroin was for about 20 years, and then all of a sudden Congress says, you know, maybe it's not such a great idea to have a nation of addicts running crazy throughout the world. And you know why it happened? A big pharmaceutical company had the great idea, hey, we've got this great drug, let's get people addicted to it, and then they'll keep buying it from us. What a brilliant marketing plan. By the way, what did I say at the beginning? Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And don't we have something going on now? An opioid crisis? I've heard about something like that. And wait, wasn't there a giant pharmaceutical company or three involved in that? Nah, must be my imagination. <laughs> that wouldn't happen again, would it? I'm just saying. And while we're talking serious lies and conspiracies and misinformation... How about smoking? We all know that smoking is bad. We all know how bad it can be for you. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I will say I have smoked in the past. I do not smoke now. I have smoked off and on over the course of years, but haven't smoked in years. And yes, when I did smoke, I knew it was bad for me. I can read. If you don't think smoking is bad for you, then that's on you. We've known that smoking is bad for you for years and years, but the U.S. government finally made it official in 1964 when the U.S. Surgeon General issued its report on smoking and health. And that's the first time that the government officially recognized that smoking is bad for you. 
And that's when the warning label started going on cigarette packs. But before that, the smoking industry, the tobacco industry, was selling their product aggressively and marketing using whatever means necessary to get people to buy it. The tobacco companies got actors and athletes, and they even had doctors endorse their products. They backed up their claims with pictures of a doctor with his stethoscope and white coat on, and you can look for these ads online. If you haven't seen them, they're astonishing. Saying that cigarette smoke is good for easing the pain in your throat. Lucky Strike Cigarettes would advertise that they were the choice cigarette because it wasn't as bad for you as others, except they didn't say as bad for you. Lucky Strike would put things in its ads like its toasted cigarettes were less harmful to your throat and would reduce coughing because of the way they prepared their tobacco. They would also advertise that if you were interested in losing weight, you should have a Lucky Strike instead of a snack. The cigarette companies would also go to medical conventions and buy endorsements from doctors. They would treat them to a fine dinner and then ask in a survey, what cigarette do you prefer? Hmm. If Camel was sponsoring the dinner... The doctors would say, well, of course, I prefer Camel cigarettes. And really, all you have to do is look back at some of the movies from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and even today, but more so in the 30s, 40s and 50s, everybody smoked. And it was featured prominently in television, movies, anything where there was a picture you would see a celebrity or an athlete with a cigarette. And if I go to auctions now, or yard sales now, or old estate sales now, you can find all kinds of fancy ashtrays. There was a whole industry in products that were associated with tobacco use. Because it was so common and so heavily promoted, even though it was going to kill you. And nobody ever said anything until 1964. Alright, so we're going to go from the government and business trying to kill us, to the church trying to kill us. Okay, maybe it wasn't really an active effort to try to kill us, but as a result of something that Pope Gregory IX did back in 1233, that arguably led to the death of hundreds of thousands of people in Europe. Here's what I'm talking about. Pope Gregory IX was probably not a cat person because he hated cats. He hated cats so much that he condemned them to death. Yup, he absolutely did. He declared that cats were to be associated with devil worship and that they should be exterminated. He issued a papal bull, which is the equivalent of a law, but in the Catholic Church, that officially condemned the black cat as an incarnation of Satan. So as a result of that, all across Europe, people began killing kitties. And Catholics across the continent didn't limit it to black cats. It just became the practice to wipe out all cats, because the Pope said that they were the incarnation of the devil. Now, how did this lead to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people? Well, you've heard of the bubonic plague, correct? The bubonic plague was transmitted by the fleas on the backs of rats all throughout Europe. What do you think the natural predator of rats is? Oh, yeah, that would be cats. So with all the cats being slaughtered, when do you think the bubonic plague happened? I'll let you look that one up. But in case you don't want to take the time, the Black Death started in 1347, which is about a hundred years after the Pope said, wipe out all the cats. Coincidence? I'm not saying. I'm just saying. Okay, that's all some pretty serious stuff, I know. Death, destruction, 
Corporations, the government, the church, all out to kill us. Maybe I should throw in a few lighter stories to bring this episode to a close. Here's the first one. Oxford University, you've heard of it? It's older than the Aztec Empire. Oxford University was founded in 1249. Aztec civilization began in 1325. You can look it up. Nintendo, we all know Nintendo, right? Guess how long Nintendo's been around? The Nintendo company has been around since 1889. Yeah, they didn't make computer games back then. Back then they made playing cards, but the same company has been in existence since 1889. We've all heard of Queen Elizabeth, right? Queen Elizabeth I, long time ago. Queen Elizabeth II still reigning in the UK. She has reigned through 12 US presidencies. She's seen 12 presidents come and go. And finally today, this may blow your mind, it did blow mine. Betty White is older than Mount Rushmore. Totally serious, go look it up. That's going to do it for today's episode of Storytime. Thanks so much for being here. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to these episodes. I love telling my stories. I'm glad you like listening to them. Until next time, you take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.